This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Hi, you're listening to the Giving Thought podcast. Uh, this is episode 14. Uh, you're here with your hosts, uh, Rod and Adam. Hey, Rod. Hi, Adam. Um, and in this episode of the uh, podcast of CAF's Think Tank Giving Thought, we're going to be looking at behavioral economics, um, which seems like quite a timely subject to be talking about, given that it was fairly recently announced that the uh, this year's Nobel Prize for Economics was going to Richard Thaler, um, who famously wrote the book on uh, called Nudge, uh, and Nudge theory has become the sort of go-to term for describing what behavioural economics is all about. Yeah, it's more actually of which something later. that. Yeah, more of which later. Um, and you know, it's a, it's a thing. There's a rich history of uh, economics struggling to get to grips with charitable giving and trying to have something to say <laughs> about it. And we'll be delving into that today. Um, so, without further ado, I think we'll go into our first section, which is basically. We're just going to have a quick look at why it is that microeconomics and behavioral economics in particular has ended up being perhaps where there's most focus now on um, charitable giving. Um, I mean, the starting point basically is to say that really a lot of the history of economics and charitable giving has been classical economics struggling to explain charity. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, like the, the classical economic model is of rational, self-interested actors trying to maximize their own utility. And what doesn't fit very neatly into that is people or individuals or agents giving things away to others without any expectation of return. Um, yeah. So you had a lot of classical economists kind of scratching their heads trying to work out, um, you know, how you could explain this or whether we could just pretend it wasn't happening. Um, yeah. But luckily, in the end, they, they lit upon uh, an explanation, a way of basically making uh, uh, altruistic behavior seem self-interested again. And maybe you can tell <laughs> us what that is, Adam. Yeah. Well, this is what's known as the uh, the warm glow theory. That is to say that essentially, I mean, it's a, it's a sort of uh, high school philosophy theory. Uh, conversation really isn't it to say that there's there are no really altruistic uh acts because fundamentally you're you're getting something out of it even if all you're getting out of it is that is the kind of warm glow and a kind of uh a reward in terms of uh emotions or in terms of endorphins or some some low level of 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 kind of personal reward and by this approach you can sort of see even what looks like on the surface a really altruistic gift as essentially self-interested. Yeah, absolutely. And this, um, it's worth saying, you know, we're sort of slightly joking about it, but it is actually a very well thought through idea. A lot of it stems from the work of um, the economist James Andrioni, who is a you know, proper, very eminent uh, economist and has looked at this stuff in great detail. And also it's interesting, just touching on something you say there, it kind of started life as a theoretical mechanism in the rather dry world of um, academic uh, economics. But what's been interesting subsequently is the application of uh, kind of neural imaging uh, techniques like uh, fMRI uh, and the kind of combination of neurology, neuroscience and economics. Um, they've actually been able to prove that 
you know whatever the underlying mechanism for it, for the warm glow is it is a real thing because if you look at people's brains when they're giving to charity uh, under kind of lab conditions you see all the sort of same responses that um, you get when they do other enjoyable things like taking recreational drugs or eating chocolate um, in terms of things like dopamine being being released. So there definitely is a real warm glow. Yeah, so I hadn't actually seen that, but that is, that is interesting. You could imagine a whole new industry of philanthropy advisors who's, who's who essentially like the pusher man whose who's whole, <laughs> whole existence is to just maximise the dopamine response from your donation. Yeah, it's a sort of vision of, you know, charity as a 19th century opium den. It's great. <laughs> cool. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's a fascinating insight. And, and in, in a lot of ways, not surprising, but it's it's a useful starting point to to a, approach the subject of, of philanthropy from a, a point of view of of economists. Look, I mean, the, the fact that the fact that we are essentially not that rational uh, financially won't be that much of a surprise to anyone who's lived through the last sort of 15 years. But um, but obviously for a long view approach to um, to economics, philanthropy is quite difficult and surprising um, because it's quite hard to justify from that kind of self-interested point of view. But at least this offers some framework to be able to kind of normalise it and, and consider it as, uh, as part of the, the, the wider dismal science. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The dismal science. And I suppose it gives you a kind of explanatory mechanism, but it still o- leaves open a lot of questions about, okay, what is it that actually constitutes this warm glow or elicits it? And that probably brings us on to what we're going to talk about in the next section, which is ways of harnessing this insight to actually kind of put things into practice in the field. Yeah, nice segue. So yes, this next section, uh, as discussed, is going to be about nudge theory essentially um so the the phrase i believe coined by richard thaler uh, recently the uh, the winner of a uh, a nobel prize for economics or as anyone who knows me will know what i would consider to be not the nobel prize for economics because actually it's not part of the original nobel prize but you know that's a rant for a whole different podcast uh, <laughs> Is that for your very niche, I hate the Nobel Prize for Economics podcast? <laughs> I, spe- yeah, I specifically hate the the Nobel Prize yeah. for it. Well, no, I can't even call it that because it, that would no, then no. mean that I I acknowledge that it exists. You, you could put it in quotation marks, but that's fine. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about this offline, maybe. Yeah, we will. Um, yeah, good. But yeah, perhaps you could just give us a, a quick lowdown on, on nudge theory, Rod. Yeah, I mean, essentially, it's, uh, you know, the idea that you can influence people's behavior um, when it comes to public policy, often um, more effectively by thinking about very small kind of incremental changes you can make to the way that choices are presented or information's offered yep. than you can by using kind of bigger macroeconomic uh, economic levers like, you know, taxation and regulation and things like that. So, you know, you often, lots of examples that you hear cited often are the difference, you know, when it comes to getting donations of blood between making it a system that people actively have to opt into or one where they're pre-registered and have to opt out of. Um, And you hear phrases like uh, choice architecture, which is this whole idea that kind of the way you put together choices, even if they're essentially the same options, has a very determinate effect on the numbers of people who choose to do different things. And this is something that's obviously 
very relevant for philanthropy and for charitable giving. Um, we at CAF actually did some work a few years back now with um, the behavioural insights in the UK uh, government's um, cabinet office, which has now spun out, I think, looking at a couple of instances sort of in the field of ways in which you could get people to give more. And it's it's really sort of almost seems trivial stuff. Like within a workplace setting, they found that, you know, with two control groups, when you sent round a message asking people to donate to a particular charity, the control group in which it was just a text message on an email sent through was much less effective than one in which there was a photo of the co-worker who was asking the question. Yeah. Um, there was there was another one where people were kind of asked to donate and in one group they were just given a note and in another one they were given a small bag of very low-value sweets. And actually the people who got the sweets were much more likely to respond positively. So it seems a bit trivial, but actually at an aggregate level, this stuff can be hugely powerful. Yeah, people are social animals and, and people... Uh fit within those systems and react in extremely complicated kind of emotional and even chemical ways to certain stimulus and figuring out what they are and how people react can be done best through lots and lots of testing and the end product of those testing can often be that for very very small changes either to the text in an email or the way that a you know a website structured or anything really you can elicit really quite noticeably different responses and that can make a huge influ a huge uh change to the efficacy of a certain intervention and for the purposes of what i'm sure many people listening to this will be thinking of a huge difference to the response rates and the donation rates uh, of of fundraising campaigns um yeah which you know as we'll in a way we'll come on to raises some ethical questions but also clearly raises some interesting opportunities it does. And there's, you know, it, uh, maybe there's a bit of a disconnect at the moment because actually squirreled away in the academic literature on this stuff, there are some fascinating suggested examples. Yeah. I mean, you, all of them are quite small scale and might be done in kind of lab conditions or, you know, kind of quite closely controlled field conditions. But just for instance, you know, things that we, we've loved talking about um, over the years, um, the sense of being watched by other oh, people yeah. has a massive determinate effect to, to the degree that if you just put up a painted picture of some eyes on the wall when you're asking people to give to charity, it makes an enormous difference um, in terms of how much they give. And even beyond that, things like if you, uh, before you ask for a donation, if you engineer a situation in which you tell somebody that the place they're in is haunted that also has an effect because they think somebody <laughs> might be watching them from beyond the grave and all these kinds of slightly silly things. But it speaks to quite a powerful truth, which is that part of the motivating force for charitable giving is your desire to improve how you seem in the eyes of others. Yeah, I mean, Britain has, uh, I think, per capita, the most CCTV cameras in the world. And also it's one of the most generous countries in the world, coincidence, Yes, probably. But. <laughs> yes, probably. <laughs> Big Brother tells you to give. Yeah, it's nice. <laughs> You've got a new, a new uh, version of uh, Orwell's 1984, which is just as depressing, but on the upside, people give loads to charity. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, on that, uh, on, on, on that slight tangent, uh, let's move on to the next section. 
and we're back. Uh, and in this, the final section, we're going to have a look at the work of another uh, Nobel Prize winning uh, economist, although it's probably sat quietly around Adam, um, uh, Daniel Kahneman, uh, who won the prize a few years back for his work on what is known in popular terms as fast and slow thinking. So over to you, Adam. Yeah, he did. He won a prize back then, didn't he? Um, <laughs> yeah, so he, this... This theory is actually deceptively simple, uh, and it's a really good one because it actually, you know, you can see it demonstrated in uh, in in your own lives. Um, so yeah, it's it's fast and slow thinking, or as he terms it in much of the research, system one and system two thinking. System one being fast thinking, or to put it another way, intuitive thinking. That is to say that you, we use our own experiences uh, as a kind of shorthand. We can draw on them at all times. Uh, to instead of having to do all the math, we can jump to the final answer because we've seen it a thousand times before. And that's incredibly useful, as you might imagine. It, it, it means that you can cut a lot of corners and jump straight to um, the right answer and you'll be right most of the time. Uh, system two, or slow thinking, is where you do the opposite of that. You, uh, you try every different permutation and you make sure that you've got the right answer and you think slowly about it, you think carefully about it. If you want to see examples of system two thinking in real life, all you need to do is look at children who, because they have a lack of experiences in the world, they will try all the different permutations and they will learn the hard way. Um, and actually, in many ways, that is uh, the safest way to go about things because you know by the end of it you've got the right answer. And that's certainly the scientific approach. But um, most people, most of the time, are using system one thinking. And that's a really uh, useful uh, finding and conclusion to draw and it has a lot of ramifications for the world of uh, charity and philanthropy doesn't it Rod? Yeah it does um, and I suppose it goes to that you know that old maxim or question about you know, charities and philanthropy like how much is it about the head and how much is it about the heart and okay it doesn't necessarily quite fit up with the system one system two thing but it's an interesting theoretical framework that talks about the same kind of thing which is essentially you know, if you're trying to get people to give more or to get them to give better, are you better off engaging them in a conversation about you know data and metrics and efficiency and all these things? Or are you better appealing to them on a more emotional or human level or to their intuitions or gut feeling? And if the evidence is saying the former, that tells you something about how you might go around uh, fundraising effectively but it does raise some challenges for people who maintain that, you know, what we need to be doing is trying to make charitable giving and philanthropy more rational or more strategic. Because if that just doesn't actually work very effectively, then there's a question about whether it is the right approach. Well, it gets incredibly meta, doesn't it? Because you, you end up having to apply uh, a system two thinking to this question. So, mm. for for example... There, there are a number of different things that we kind of intuit. The, the, the firstly, firstly, we uh, intuitively we think that it's important that uh, that data is measured and that decisions are made based using that data. And we, even as donors, we tend to all think that we are rational. Uh, mm-hmm. Intuitively, we we sort of know that to be true, and we intuitively seem to think that we know. Uh, what are the most uh, effective re- remedies, which are the causes that are most deserving. But in fact, that doesn't always turn out to be true. Um, and in fact, even though we think that we react this way, we don't. 
So, you know, we, we've seen uh, from uh, studies that we've read uh, a number of uh, analysis of, uh, of the way that people respond to impact data, for example. And in some cases, it seems to be the case that um, people, if, when you show them impact data, actually give less, even if that impact is shown to be incredibly, in, incredibly uh, high. Um, so knowing that's kind of interesting. Um, the reality is, um, it seems to be that when we uh, when we appeal to pe- to system one conclusions in people, when we when we have uh, the more simple narratives around fundraising, it seems to land home. But then we also need to consider whether that is actually in the long term advantage of the sector as a whole, which in itself requires us to think a little bit more deeply than we than we often do. Yeah, I suppose there's a question about, you know, whether by focusing on system one thinking, if that's the most effective way of raising money, you're always just reinforcing people's existing intuitions and it makes it much harder to challenge them. And whether actually, you know, part of the job of the charity sector or people working in philanthropy sometimes is to challenge those preconceptions or misconceptions. Um, so, yeah, it's 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 quite a difficult conundrum. Um, I mean, think one of my uh, favorite findings from academia that speaks to this is, you know, the danger of applying system two thinking um, around economics is that actually there's there's some evidence that if you study more economics, uh, particularly around charitable giving, it makes you less likely to give to charity. Because, <laughs> right. Because it means once you start discussing things like, you know, the problems around free riding and the fact that altruistic behavior doesn't really make sense, you suddenly go, oh, yeah, maybe it doesn't. So I'll just stop giving to charity. <laughs> Is this going to be our bombshell conclusion to the, uh, yeah, to the podcast? Ne- never ask, never <laughs> we should stop giving to donations. charity. Yeah. <laughs> I'd just like to say that it, 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 that is not a view endorsed by <laughs> no, 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 it's not, not endorsed by giving thought nor calf, no. Um, but no, I think, you know, joking aside, this the, the interesting thing about this, the point around system one, system two, and also kind of nudge approaches is that question of, balancing the efficacy of approaches that might kind of pander if that's not too pejorative a term to kind of people's pre-existing thoughts and views and biases or those that try to shape their behavior by making them take a more rational approach or to kind of think about issues in a different way and you know that's quite a big tension for organizations who are at one and the same time looking to people to give donations but also trying to kind of shift the dial on particular social issues yeah there's no there's no short or easy answer is there for charities here because clearly it, it seems to be the case that uh, appealing to sort of system one thinking seems to generate uh, greater finances and any the one charity that decides to be the exception that uh, that decides to kind of um kind of use system two approaches with donors is likely to lose out and they're unlikely to choose that um, I, mm. I guess what we need to do is to try and create more positive experiences that demonstrate that um, that demonstrate that certain approaches have greater efficacy, so that over time that becomes part of our system one intuition. But that's not an easy fix. No, I think you're right there. Uh, and on that note, I think we should uh, bring this edition to a close. I mean, cantered through all that, so. 
Um, well, I think before we go, I should probably, it's been uncomfortable sitting in here because there, there's been something of an <laughs> elephant, and a giant elephant sitting in this room. Um, and one final bombshell for all our devoted listeners uh, that I should break at the moment is that uh, Adam is actually leaving the, the Good Ship Charities Aid Foundation for, for Past is New. Um, what we're going to do with this podcast is as yet TBC, but we're hopeful that we'll come up with a way of fudging things so we'll be able to keep going with it but you might have to just bear with us for a few weeks while we uh, iron out the details of that so there may be some slightly longer gaps and that kind of thing um but in the meantime for this edition particularly um as ever you know check out the show notes there'll be links to blogs and all kinds of material on the things we've been discussing um and you know if you like what we've been doing drop us a line and tell us that and if you don't like what we've been doing Drop us a line and tell us that as well. <laughs> yeah. uh, and you know, keep the engagement on social media going. Um, and we'll see you all soon. Yeah, well, hopefully we'll have a couple more podcasts uh, um, in the in the can as well. So you might hear me uh, podcasting from, uh, from beyond the uh, grave, as it were. Um, but it's yeah. been a pleasure, if not. And, uh, and I'm sure I'll be uh, back on the pod at some stage anyway, even after I've left. Definitely. Okay, thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye.